For those that don't know me, my name is Tim Bedall, and I serve as the teaching pastor at our Sugar Grove campus, and it's an absolute pleasure and privilege to uh, uh, be here uh, today as the teaching pastors uh, take each of the segments of the Lord's Prayer, and uh, we uh, are giving ourselves a little bit of a break. We, pre- we plan one sermon, and we get to preach it three times at each of the campuses, and so Pastor Travis is out at the Indian Creek campus today preaching the message you heard last week, and he'll be then at Sugar Grove next week, and uh, uh, you'll have uh, Pastor Dave from our Indian Creek campus here uh, to preach the final part. And so we're going to do a little rewinding uh, back to the first part that Travis didn't hit on uh, last week as we continue to address the Lord's Prayer. But let me ask God's blessing on our time in God's Word this morning. Father God, we come before you and we praise your name. And Lord, uh, we ask as the disciples did, teach us to pray. Teach us what it is to know how to communicate with you, to find intimacy with you. Lord, I pray that as we come before you, we would recognize that as we have sung today, you are a holy God. And so, Lord, we cannot just come in some trite or or casual fashion to your throne. Though, Lord, you give us the ability to come with confidence, we recognize there's much that needs to change in our lives so that we can have true intimacy and true fellowship with you. And so, Lord, with this model prayer, we pray uh, that our prayers would be according to it, that we might lift our voices and our hearts to the God who loves us, who has forgiven us, the God who desires a relationship with us. So, Lord, I pray that this message might impact not only the preacher, but the hearers as well, and that you'd be brought glory and honor and praise as a result of what is said today. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you haven't found uh, the passage in your Bibles yet, we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 6, and uh, starting in verses 9 and 10 is where my uh, passage is going to be at. We're going to be sitting there uh, for the rest of our time. We won't find ourselves going uh, too far away from there. If you have a a sermon insert page, if you want to go ahead and grab that out of your bulletin, and you can follow along. And right away, I want to jump right in. To having you take some notes that are outside of the notes that I have for you uh, this morning. As we've been studying the Lord's Prayer, as we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus has been teaching us, his followers, what it is to be followers in the kingdom of God. And it's very different than the way that uh, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were telling people how to live. That righteousness was not found in just outward conformity, but an inward and heart depth of change. What it meant was is that we couldn't just go through the motions of being followers of Jesus Christ. We really had to do what we believed, and it needed to transform the very heart of who we are. And when we get to the point of prayer, Jesus has been teaching us what our attitudes need to be like. He's been teaching us what our actions need to be like, how we are to uh, interact with others. And now he gets to the affection part of it. How are we to relate with our God? How are we to show him our love and affection? How are we to uh, involve ourselves in a relationship with him? And right away, Jesus says there are three ways that you're going to do it. Through your giving, through your praying, and through your fasting. Uh, We've talked about giving at the beginning of chapter 6. And we'll talk about fasting in a couple weeks But over these three weeks that we have um, uh, apart here, we are going to look at what it means to pray. What it means to pray our Father who is in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But as we come to the Lord's Prayer, one of the most famous passages of Scripture, we have to recognize there's some things we need to know. And some of this may be uh, a bit of review from where Pastor Travis has had us. But there's a couple of things I want us to, to write down in our outlines this morning to remind us about this prayer. Number one, this prayer is a pattern for us to pray. Notice in verse 9, Jesus says uh, we are to pray like this. We are, that is, to glean principles and truths from the example that Jesus is giving. He wants us to follow this pattern. And notice next, we are told right away who we are to address our prayers to. Notice that the prayers aren't to any other human being. As wonderful and great and humble of a woman Mary was, Mary is not to be prayed to. The scriptures make it clear that we are to pray to our Father who is in heaven. Notice that Jesus is going to help us with our prayer life, that not only that uh, it's a pattern, not only that it's to a particular person, but our prayers would be balanced. Notice in the text, we're going to deal with God here in these verses. And then the passage that we learned last week from Pastor Travis was learning about ourselves. And then next week, you'll hear about how to interact and how to pray in such a way that it'll impact the lives of others. And so we've got the vertical, we've got the internal, and we've got the horizontal aspect of our lives showing up in this prayer. Notice then, as we look at this, we must be very careful. We must be very careful because many will say uh, that this is not a prayer to be prayed in churches and at weddings and funerals. Uh, this is a prayer that's simply just to be used as an example. But I want to remind you in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, I want you to pray these words. And I want to remind, especially a part of a Protestant church, uh, one that uh, uh, lacks a, a level of high church liturgy, that it is altogether good, it is altogether profitable for the people of God with one voice to utter these words together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is good for us. Now, some of us, especially of those who maybe have come from those types of backgrounds where this prayer has been something that has become rote, the Lord's Prayer was never to be a substitute for our heartfelt, free-flowing prayers that would lift our petitions and our concerns and our adoration to God. And so we have to hold these things in balance. We have to hold these things and understand that this was never written to be a mindless collection of words uttered for a religious scenario or situation. The final thing I want you to understand is, of this prayer, is that it's not a magic formula. This cannot be used, no matter how much you want to pray this prayer, how often you pray it, you must recognize this morning that this prayer is not some magic formula that moves God to do things because you've done something. God does things because he decides to do things. God does things because it is a part of his plan and a part of his purpose. And what we will learn is, is that this is a contrite and humble assessment of our spiritual need, our physical need for forgiveness and mercy, and even our daily provision that we need to the only God who can provide all that we need. So with that as a way of introduction, as a way of reminding us what this prayer is about, let's look at these opening verses. 
of this incredible prayer and how we might learn about whom we're praying to and why he needs to be a greater element and part of our prayer life as well. I don't know about you, but for me, prayer is a difficult thing. It doesn't come easy for me at times. And just like with our children, our communication as followers of Jesus Christ has to become something that is always growing. I have a five-year-old son who is, we're watching his vocabulary and, and his communication skills grow dramatically. And I hope that my five-year-old will be one who talks like a five-year-old, but when he's 35, I hope he's not talking the same way. And some of us have been Christians for a long time, and we talk like we did when we first came to know Jesus. And what Jesus is articulating to us this morning, the reason why he puts the Lord's Prayer in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is he says, I want to remind you that as you grow in your beliefs and your understanding about me, then the way you live around other people will change. It will mature. It will grow. And likewise, your prayer life should grow as well. And so how do we do that? Our prayer life grows as we come more intimate with our Father in heaven, as we know more about Him. And so as we come to this text this morning, I want to spend more time focusing in on God, if you will, than even prayer itself. And my hope is, is that we know more about God. We'll be able to communicate with Him on a far deeper level. That we will know and understand how we ought to approach this God, how we are to pray to Him. And so to do so, we need to recognize this morning that we have to buy into this thing called prayer. And what I mean by that is we have to own it. We have to take it and believe that prayer is something that goes to the ears of God. That this isn't some mindless habit that God has given His followers just to waste their time, but that God uniquely desires for the people of God to pray to Him, their Father in heaven. That He wants to hear our prayers, but even more than that, He wants to answer the prayers that we pray. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that your activity, when you get on your knees and lift things up to God, are not just going into God's one ear and going out the other, but that they are impacting the heart of God in a way like a father does who wants to give his children the things that will bless them and grow them. Well, to be able to do that, there are three things this morning that I want to address. As a way of help, I want to tell you my first point's my longest, my second point's the second longest, and the third one's going to go like a blur, okay? And so I don't want to scare you with that. I know what time Pastor Travis said I needed to be done, and I will shoot for that to be faithful to your time and our time together. And so I want you to notice three things today that we have to believe in if we're going to buy into this issue called prayer. The first thing is we have to acknowledge the person of God. Jesus right away says, Our Father who is in heaven. Now let's just take a couple moments and let's understand a little bit about this prayer. Number one, Jesus expected our prayer to be a real thing. I want you to notice that Jesus isn't speaking about some theoretical or some esoteric exercise of meditation where you let your mind kind of wander and go some, to some special place where waterfalls are ever-present. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to communicate with your Father. I want you to talk with Him. I want you to notice that there's a dialogue that's happening 
with a real person. Now, right away, uh, we will say that prayer is something very natural for us as believers. It's just talking to God. If you want a definition of prayer, it is communication uh, with our God in heaven. And right away, we'll say, well, there's no fancy words to this. There's nothing of any incredible depth, if you will, uh, to the words or phrases that Jesus is saying. My children can understand the very essence of what is being articulated here. It seems altogether natural that I could articulate these things to another human being in the sense that it's nothing radical in our conversation. If we were to say these words in a public venue, nobody would think anything odd of these words. There's no magic in these words. But we must recognize the reason why the world looks at us a bit odd when we pray is that these words, as earthy and as human as they are, are being prayed to a God we do not see. They are being prayed to a God that we don't hear from in an audible way. We, we don't sit there and converse with God as we may converse with one another. This is a God whom is enthroned in heaven. And as a result of that, people look at us and say, that whole prayer thing that you do, it doesn't make any sense. It's weird. It's foolishness. Why would you do such a thing? And yet any of us who have prayed by faith, knowing that God has heard our prayers, knows that God not only hears our prayers, but answers them. I believe in prayer because I have laid out my requests and my concerns to God, and God has heard my prayer, and He has answered my prayer in only ways that God can. And so we need to understand that this God whom we're praying to is a God we need to know a little bit about. Now notice right away, Jesus starts out this passage, and He reminds us in, in the way we are to pray this. And number one, it involves being a part of a community. Notice the word our, not mine, not your, not his, not hers, but our, our Father who is in heaven. This is a reminder. Jesus puts a signpost and says, you are not living the Christian life on your own. You are living it in community. You are living it with others. What you need to recognize and what I need to recognize this morning is that God does not have one child. You and I are not only children. We have brothers and sisters that we're a part of. And we're a part of this community. And so when we approach God in prayer, we must recognize that when we lift our concerns, when we lift up our adoration to God, we are doing so in chorus with the thousands upon thousands of other people who are seeking God in their prayer life. When we pray together within churches, one of the reasons why public prayer is a part of the church service is not so that you can hear our sister Andrea pray a prayer and say, well, that was a nine or that was an eight and, and judge that prayer. No, what we are doing is what should be happening is that your spirit should be bearing witness with her spirit. And as she adores the name of Jesus, you as your hands are clasped and your eyes are closed and your head is bowed in the chair there where you're sitting, you are in agreement with her saying, yes, Lord, I agree with my sister. We are a community of people who have the same God in heaven. Now, right away, Jesus then pivots and he wants us to know the reason why we can have community, why we can have this common unity in the faith is because we have the same Father. So notice we're in community, but right away Jesus says we're a part of the same family. And he says, our Father, this Father who we have in heaven. Now I want you to notice today our gathering. 
today isn't because of our commonality in race. As I look out, just as it is at my campus, we have people from all different backgrounds. Our commonality is not found in our background. And that, what I mean by that is we don't all come from the city of Aurora. We didn't all grow up in the same school district. We didn't go to the same college. We don't go to the same workplace. We have different lives. And so what brings us together? Well, maybe it's the social economic status. Well, we have those who are doing really well financially and those who are really struggling, so that doesn't do it. Well, maybe it is that we root for the same sports teams. Well, I know Jack Brothers is here, and him and I do not root for the same baseball teams. All right? So what is it that brings us together, that unifies us? What unifies us as a people from all backgrounds, from all workplaces, and all kinds of uh, places where we come from, the thing that brings us together is we serve the same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we serve Him, we can sing together. Because we serve Him, we can fellowship together. Because we serve Him, we can pray together. We can hear His Word being preached. And we can stand in a solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, right away, you say, well, that's, I get that. We're a family. God's our Father. We're His children. We've known that since we were young kids. But I want you to understand there was absolute scandal when Jesus shared this. When Jesus said in His original context... I want you to address the God of the universe as our Father. I want you to recognize that what he was saying was out of the absolute norm of what the Israelite people had heard. For years now, the Israelite people have come to know God as a transcendent God who in many ways had put a distance between himself and people. You don't have to look very far than a display of the temple that God simply put barriers between people and himself. And that there was only one, a priest, one individual who would make himself right before God, who would enter into the Holy of Holies. And so the people of Jesus' day only knew a God of distance. Notice for a moment that even the patriarchs and the prophets, while they had a relationship with God, it was short-lived at times in the sense that, uh, that he would commune with them in a real way. But it was only given to only a few people. Moses had that kind of relationship. Abraham had that kind of relationship. Even King David at times had that kind of relationship. But I want you to notice Jesus changes the way we relate to God with this one word, our Father. I want you to notice that this title, Father, is used only 14 times in the Old Testament. 14 times. And it usually spoke of God being the father of the Israelite nation. And so it wasn't even he's my father, or he's our father, he's the father of the country we're a part of, like we would call George Washington the father of our nation, our, our founding fathers. And so it was more of a corporate fatherhood, not an individual one. But notice when Jesus speaks these words, he shares a title that we would come to know for many of us who have been around the church. It's an Aramaic word that Jesus uses, the word Abba. Jesus would use this word Abba 60 times just in the Gospels. One commentator said the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament can be found in the word Father. Because our relationship in the New Testament radically changes from where it was at in the Old Testament. And so here's this God 
who has seemingly been far off from his people because of their sin, because of their rebellion. Now Jesus says, the way I want my followers to address their God in heaven is with this word, Abba. Father, it can mean daddy. It's a tender and loving word. It's about as endearing as you can get. It's not a title of formality, but of friendliness, of intimacy. I hear this word, Father or Abba, every day I come home from one of my family members. See, my five-year-old still gets excited when Dad comes through the door. And so I come into the laundry room and I will hear, Daddy's home. And it doesn't come, Daddy's home. Well, hello, Father. Nice to see you. How was work today? It is a little five-year-old boy wrapping his arms around my leg and saying, Oh, Dad, it's awesome to see you. It's great to see you. I missed you. And what God is wanting to articulate through His Son, Jesus Christ, is that is how He wants us to approach Him. He wants us to wrap our arms around Him and show love and affection. Now, why would we do this? Because Christ says, I want you to relate to my Father in heaven just as I have. I want you to notice that every time Jesus addresses his Father as Father, he uses that word, Abba. I want you to also recognize that there is only one time that Jesus does not address his Father in that way. In Luke uh, chapter 27, verse 46, while on the cross, Jesus refers to his father, not his daddy, when he utters the word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to understand that that is an incredible shift for his son Jesus to make. Why does Jesus change? Why does Jesus go from 60 times in every reference to his dad as Abba? Does he all of a sudden turn? Well, you can say real quick, well, he's quoting the psalmist. And that's what the psalmist did. Brothers and sisters, the reason why the second person of the Trinity utters the word, my God, my God, is because fellowship had been broken. And what we need to recognize is, is if you want to have a father-daughter, father-son relationship with the God of the universe, then we need to do our best to make sure sin never gets in the way. The moment that Jesus bears the sins of you and I on the cross of Calvary, his relationship changed. Where he became sinner and he now looks to his holy God in heaven and he calls out to him not to forsake him because of his sin. But I want you to know then thereafter, at that point where the, cry, where the cross had now paid the penalty of our sins, Jesus utters his closing words. Abba, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus understood what it meant to have an Abba in heaven, and he desires for you and I to have the same. Now, why is this Abba so important? Abba reminds us that you and I are loved. We are loved. Now, I know some of you right away will say, I hate, Tim, when, when preachers talk about God in the sense of a father. Because when I hear dad, when I hear father, the only idea or picture that comes up in my mind is that of a demon, not of God. 
Oh, Tim, you don't know what my father has done. You don't know how terrible he was to my mom and to my brothers and sisters. You don't know the evil things that he did. Well, I want to remind you, when God says he's our father, he doesn't say he's just any ordinary father. Or he's not like your father. But he addresses himself as the loving father. See, he wants us to recognize that that he's a father that shows love. But notice, it's not just love, but because he loves, God is a forgiving father. One of the greatest stories that Jesus ever tells is the story of an Abba. Remember, there's an Abba who has two sons. And the youngest of the two, son, the youngest of the two sons comes to his Abba, and he says the unthinkable. Dad, I know you're not dead yet, but I wish you were. Because I want your inheritance. So I'm not willing to wait until you die. I want it now. And so give me your inheritance so I can go live my life. Because I don't want to live it with you. What a picture of rebellion and absolute hatred a son shows his father. The father gives him his inheritance. The young man goes. And he pursues all kinds of wild living. You know the story. He pursues all kinds of debauchery. Why does he do that? Because he's a selfish young man. And he lives that way until he runs out of funds. And then he's got to go find a job. And he finds himself, and we know the story, in the pig pen. Yearning and coveting the pods of grain that the pigs are eating. And he has an epiphany at that moment. And he says, you know what? If I go back to my father, even the slaves, the servants in his house, live better than I live right now. So I'll go back and I'll plead my case. And, and maybe my, my father, my Abba, will give me a job in his house. At least I'll be able to eat. At least I'll have a roof over my head and I will go. Well, the story tells us that he starts heading back home. And Jesus says while the, while the boy is still far off, the Abba sees him. And the Abba doesn't come running with a clenched fist saying, I knew it or I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make you feel the pain. You'll never want to leave again. You'll wish you were dead. No, the father comes running. And he grabs hold of the son. And he hugs him. And what does he do? There's no words of you blew it. There's no words of how could you. There are words of forgiveness and reconciliation. I am glad that which was lost is now found. Let's kill the fattened calf. Let's get everybody together. Let's throw a party. You see, here is the great thing about our prayer life. When we recognize whom we're praying to, it will radically change not only the way we communicate, but it will radically change the amount of times we communicate with them. When we see this God not as this sterile and distant God, but as one who loves us and who wants to forgive us and just shower us with his grace and mercy, we will find ourselves falling in love anew with the God who's our Father in heaven, our Abba. But notice right away before we get too far into this, you see many of us will say, Amen, Tim, I get it. And that's how I see God. And we sing songs like, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. God, he's my buddy. He's my pal. He's my dad. And I'm so casual and so open to him. I don't like high-end prayers because really we're just family. And I should be able to talk to him like I talk to 
any other human being. But I want to remind you, notice what the text says. He says, yes, our, we're in community, our Father, we're in family. But notice this Father whom we serve is in heaven. He is our authority. He's our authority. Our Father speaks of closeness to our God. But then he adds the word in heaven, and it reminds us that God is totally transcendent. In heaven speaks of the seat of all authority, power, and dominion, and greatness. When we say our Father who is in heaven, we are reminded we pray from a place of weakness and total insignificance. As a young man, my parents ran a, a catering business, and I was working one summer, probably 14 years of age, 13 or 14, And I remember uh, working on a particular event with my dad, and it was a customer he had had for a long time, and they had a great relationship. And many of you know my dad is an immigrant from Iraq. And uh, so my dad was uh, serving the the people, and and he had this conversation with the customer, and they were ribbing one another, and, and the guy was really getting my dad, and he's laughing, and, oh, Bill, you're just a good old camel jockey from Iraq, just a good old camel jockey. And so... Everyone around starts laughing. I'm laughing. Dad's laughing. The customer's laughing. It's a great time. We're all laughing. And so I'm thinking, this is great. And so we're in the van driving home. And we're starting to have a conversation. And my dad says something that I, you know, I don't think is all that important for me to listen to. He had told me I needed to do something. And I utter the words, oh, Bill, you're just a good old camel jockey. To which my dad looks at me in the van and he says, I'm not your friend. I'm not your peer. I'm not your, you're not my customer. I'm your dad. And you're going to speak with me with respect and honor. I knew that moment I crossed the line just a little bit. I have a way of crossing the line just a little bit. But what I learned was that, yes, I have a dad whom I could wrestle with. I had a dad whom I could, could have great times of of uh, closeness with, but I also have a father who plays a role. He has a place in my life. My father, as a young kid, just as every young kid in this place, and what I mean by young is if you are still being sustained by your parents, you could be 35 in their house, your dad is your authority, all right? Until you move out, pay the rent, pay your food, and take care of everything, your dad's your authority, okay? And what I had to recognize as a teenager was I had an authority, And I had to understand and balance the tension between this guy whom I loved, who I had closeness with, who also I needed to respect. You see, many of us approach God and we approach him with this idea that he's a a God that we can get chummy with. He's a God that we can have all kinds of casual conversations with. And yes, that is true, but I want to remind you of a truth that I learned as studying the disciples. And it has to do with the Apostle John. You see, the Apostle John learned this. Many of you know the Apostle John was the youngest of all the apostles. And he was the apostle that Jesus loved. Many scholars believe the Apostle John was probably uh, a young man, maybe even a young boy uh, at the time of of Jesus' calling of him. And we see that he says a lot of dumb things, just as many of the disciples did. But he was probably some sort of young teenager when Jesus is discipling him. Well, Jesus says that this is the one that I love. And we remember at the Lord's Supper, the Apostle John, the Scripture says, reclines at the breast of Jesus. He gets up close and personal with this Jesus. 
They're having a blast, man. It's just me and Jesus. Mono and mono, we're just loving on one another. I have a great relationship with my friend, this great guy, Jesus. Well, I want you to fast forward. Many years later, after the events of Easter, after the ascension, the Apostle John on the island of Patmos will pen the final words of our Bible in the book of Revelation. Same Jesus, same John. They meet again in the opening chapters of that book. And it is not a moment that the Apostle John finds himself reclining at the breast of Jesus. The Bible says in the first chapter of the book of Revelation that when John sees Jesus, he falls to his face as if dead. So brothers and sisters, as we approach prayer, this Father who is in heaven, we must recognize, yes, he's our Father on one side. But with tension, we must also understand he is our God in heaven, and we need to balance that while we draw close to him, he will draw near to us. We must remember that our God is an all-consuming fire. And so don't respect him. Don't respect his role. Don't think that you can dishonor him and go your own way and think that he's just going to say, well, let bygones be bygones. Let's just chum up together again. Let's just have a good time. He is a God who has made us family, but he is always and always will be our authority who is in heaven. We must recognize that. Now notice the second point this morning. Once we understand whom we are acknowledging, who is this God whom we are praying to? We then must uh, ha- then move to affirming the preeminence of God. Now, what I mean by that is once we've identified whom we're going to pray to, the question that every believer must ask this morning is, is he worth it? Is God worth praying to? Have you ever asked that question? Do you know that every prayer individual who prays needs to ask that question? Because you can't utter words of prayer and not say, well, if I'm going to say, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm giving a lot to God. I'm saying things that in essence are checks that I'm writing saying, yes, I believe that God is the God of the universe. That as his will is being done on heaven, it will be done on earth. That he is a God who's far supreme over anything that I know or have ever seen. And so we have to ask the question this morning, is he preeminent? Now, one of the reasons why uh, we will come to this passage and we'll say, well, Tim, I know you're going to ask, you know, am I praying? And right away, many of us will come up with all kinds of reasons why we don't pray. Tim, you don't understand how busy I am. The kids and the job and coming and going, there's so much to be done. I I just don't have time to pray. Others of us will right away default to, well, Tim, you don't understand, I have attention deficit disorder. And every time I I try to pray, man, my mind goes just all over the place. To which I always love all of those attention deficit disorders, have no problem watching seven hours of football without moving an inch on a Sunday. So what is it that keeps us from praying? I will tell you that the reason why you and I don't pray isn't because we're distracted. It isn't because we don't have time. It is because God isn't that important. Because if we saw God as who he really was, and we saw God as the preeminent one, you better believe we would pray. 
You better believe we'd be on our knees because he's important. He is the one who is greater than all other things. What does any other conversation have to do with uh, or, or can be gauged against our Father who is in heaven? So notice, Jesus says, that if you're going to affirm the preeminence of God, it means that we will hollow the name of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? What in the world does that word hallowed mean? It's not hollow like empty, but hallowed. Literally, it means to set apart as holy, to consider as holy, to treat as holy, to revere something above all other things. Well, what then are we to name Jesus, or what are we to hallow then, Jesus? The answer is the name of God. Why the name? Why are we to hallow God's name? Because a name in the Israelite history was a fulfillment of all the individual was and is. And so when he says, I want you to hallow the name of God, I want you to hallow who he is, his attributes, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. You see, names were important in Israel's history. For those who are, grow up in, in a more Near East or Middle Eastern culture, as I did, I recognized the importance of names. You see, when I was brought into this world as a cute little bundle of joy, and I do mean little, I was a little guy, I know that surprises many of you. My parents looked at me and, and said, his name will be Timothy Daniel. And you say, well, that's... You know, why'd they name that? Did my mom or dad know somebody they really liked that, that that was their name? No, here's the reason for my name. The name Timothy comes from the Bible. And the Bible's character of Timothy is a man, is a man who was born into a mixed relationship. You see, Timothy's dad was Greek, and Timothy's mom was a Jew. My dad was from Iraq, and my mom was from a far-off land called West Aurora. Okay? And they came together, and they had a child. And as they had the child, just as Timothy's parents did, though they came from a world's apart, they had made a decision early on that this young boy would be raised in the admonition of the Lord. How from infancy, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. And so my parents said, we want this boy to know the Scriptures. We want him to love his God. We want him to be a follower of God. But then you say, Daniel, why Daniel? Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament. You see, Daniel was a young man who lived a very difficult life. You see, Daniel was a young boy who was immersed into the culture of his homeland of Israel. But very quickly in Daniel's life, Israel would be taken over by Babylon. If you don't know where Babylon is at, it's modern-day Iraq. My father said, I want a son who is connected with the world that is around him, just as I have been connected with the world around me. And notice what Daniel does. Daniel leaves his place where God is number one, and he goes into a land where God is not even one of many. He's a God nobody thinks about. And does Daniel uh, scream and yell? Does Daniel do anything more than make the name of Jehovah glorious? And so my parents, as they were looking at this little boy, said, we want a boy who comes from mixed relationship, 
this boy who's going to have at the beginning of his life scripture be a part of his life and we're going to have a boy that we are going to raise that will impact the community around them you see Daniel impacted uh, as a Christian as a follower of God with the most evil of kings and he changed the world around him as a result of being faithful and good you see God wants us to know why our names are important. Now, right, many of you are saying, I've got to find out what my name is. Because names help. And you may say, well, I don't know why I was named the name I was. I don't know what it means. Well, here's the thing. Your job is to live out a name that is proven to be faithful to God. Your name may mean wonderful daisy and the wild flowers of Vermont. You make that flower in Vermont be the most glorious thing to Jesus. You see, when we hollow the name of God, we hollow his name because it is his identity. It is who he is. The Jews put their trust and hope in a God because his name, what he had done, had brought hope and trust. Notice the psalmist said this, some hope in horses, others in chariots, but we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. Jesus in his priestly prayer said this, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you yet, I have known you, and I have made known your name to them. When we hallow the name of God, what it means is we do what God is already doing. We are in agreement with God. I want you to understand God does not need us to hallow his name because he can't do it himself. Since the beginning of creation, God has set himself apart. With every step of creation, God has hallowed his name. When he created the angels, he says, you're different than me. I am the righteous and holy God, and you're less than that. When he created the universe, he said, universe, you are magnificent and wonderful, and you are good, but you are less than me. When he created the plant life and animal life, he said, hey, it's beautiful and and glorious and good, but you're less than me. When he created you and I and our parents, Adam and Eve, he said, it's very good. But he said, you are less than me. God continues and will forevermore continue to hallow his name. He will set himself apart. And what he wants his followers to do is to be in agreement with that. We are to say there is no equal to our God. Well, how do we do that? Three things very quickly. Number one, we have to determine if God is going to be number one. Here's what separates the believer from the unbeliever. For unbelievers can desire bread, and even pagans can desire forgiveness in this prayer. Only a believer can hallow the name of God. But to do so, follower of Jesus Christ, sitting in this room today, you must ask the question, is God number one? Is he that part in your life? Do you see your relationship with God above all other earthly relationships is God what fires you up is God the reason why you get up in the morning is God the one who brings the most joy and passion to your life if he doesn't then we are failing in hollowing his name now we know there's going to be competition we know there are going to be things that come and so what we must do is what young people do these days 
for us older folks, I had to look this up. I had to do a Wikipedia search on this. But young people talk about the DTR. And that is you define the relationship. And so you've been hanging out with a, a person of the opposite sex and, and, and you've done maybe a little dating, a little, a little flirting has gone on and yet at some point you've got to stop and say, where's this going? What's happening here? And I will tell you, many of us have not had that DTR in our relationship with God. We have not defined the relationship that you're in charge, I'm not. I will submit and honor you with all of my life. I will do so because you are my heavenly Father who loves me and has forgiven me. And for some of us this morning, we have to ask the question, God, are you number one? Notice Joshua says, choose this day whom you're going to serve. A lot of us want to pray this Lord's Prayer. But we want to do so apart from choosing today that we're going to serve God, even if it's difficult. Well, once we determine that God is number one, then we will declare that God is number one. Notice, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what happens is, is when we begin to see God for who He is, we will declare Him. Martin Luther, in his catechism, said that God's name is hallowed when our life and our speech and our doctrine are fully Christian. And so we will start to declare that God is number one. This will change the way we communicate with God. That is why it's so easy for the unbeliever to use God's name in vain, because it's nothing. It's not worth anything. And so we have to recognize that when we declare that God is number one, we are saying to God in agreement with Him, yes, there is no equal to you, God. And I will tell you, that will change the way we worship. It will change the way we pray. Because we will not be the one on the throne. We will not be the one who has the answers. It will be God alone. Which will then lead us to demonstrate some things. You see, when we believe the right things about God, we will not only declare them, but we will demonstrate them. I like to many times not only speak to the positive of a, of a point in my sermon, but also the negative side. And so I want to say, well, well, what does it mean to not demonstrate that God is number one? Ray Pritchard in his book uh, on the Lord's Prayer says that we do not hollow the name of God when more than a million babies are killed through abortion in America every year, when drugs are sold like candy on street corners, when sexuality of all kinds is celebrated as natural and normal ways of life. When the divorce rate equals that of the marriage rate. When we laugh and giggle at, at uh, debauchery on TV when we ought to be blushing. God's name is not hollowed when, when we think nothing of attending filthy movies. When we cheat on our income taxes and joke about it. When spiritual leaders fall into sin and our hearts are not broken. When Christians keep quiet on the job in order to avoid persecution. God's name is not hollowed when we secretly envy sinners who do the things that we are forbidden to do. We do not hollow the name of God when we tithe to a mortgage company instead of tithing to the Lord. When Christians 
teenagers are encouraged to go to a good college instead of considering uh, a service unto their Lord. When we value the approval of others than the approval of God. God's name is not hallowed when we gossip about sins of others instead of mourning over our own. When we criticize our brothers and sisters for failing to live up to our own expectations. God's name is not hallowed when we hold grudges for days, weeks, months, and even years. God's name is not hallowed when for the Christian, the Bible becomes a closed book and prayer becomes a heavy burden. Are we hallowing the name of God? You say, my goodness, Tim, the Lord's Prayer is a high standard. Helmut Thielich, a commentator, said this, You cannot and you will not have ever prayed the Lord's Prayer unless you have prayed it against yourself. What that means is when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray it against ourselves and our tendencies to want to be the object of our own prayers. What we are praying when we ask God's name to be hallowed is for His name to be great, not our own. What we say is when we are articulating the words, hallowed be your name, what we say with our mouth is we want Him to be hallowed. But in our spirit many times we say, but not in my business, not in my finances, not in my leisure, not in my friendships, not in my sex life, not in my thought life, not in my speech, not in my dreams and plans, not in my schedule, not in my priorities. We say, Lord, you can have it all, but don't touch a thing. So we have to decide. And this decision will determine whether or not we will affirm that preeminence of God in our lives. So how do we know if we're doing it? I said the third point's short, so put on your seatbelts and we'll close this thing out fast. It involves accepting the program of God. How do you know if you are praying the Lord's Prayer and praying for that matter in a way that you should? The answer is seen in what we are doing and and if we are accepting what God has for us. I want you to understand that when it says your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is a reminder that God is up to something. Are you a part of it? Are you pursuing it? Are you accepting it not as God's mission, but as your mission in your life? Because God is our Father in heaven, because His name is to be hallowed, then you and I should only see it as right and fitting for us to do something about it. Well, what are we to do? Well, first of all, we need to see how God is at work. Notice this phrase here, your kingdom come, your will be done, is a phrase or a word of conviction. Literally, it means come, kingdom of God. Come, kingdom will of God. Do you pray that every morning? God, I want your will to be my will. I want your kingdom to be my kingdom. I want to do it your way. John the Baptist said it this way, I must decrease so that he might increase. So how do we do that? Well, we need to see that God's will and kingdom impact us personally. It impacts us personally. How does it do that? Right next to that, just take some notes here. What does it mean to be personally impacted by the kingdom of God? Number one, you'll be fully satisfied. John Piper says in a quintessential statement, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You want to hollow the name of God? You want to accept the program of God? Be satisfied in the things of God. Job, the prophet, said this, God gives and he takes away. And here's my answer, God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you say that this morning? That you are fully satisfied in Him? 
number two, not only to be fully satisfied, but to be fully sanctified, that you and I will be a people who are no longer like ourselves, but each and every day we are being rendered more and more like Jesus. And finally, if you recognize that you're fully secure in him, that when you fail, when you are rebellious, when you pursue other distractions instead of God, that you know that the love of God allows us to know that nothing can separate us from him. But notice God has a plan not only personally for us, but corporately as a church. And notice that uh, what the church's job is to do is, first of all, to exalt the name of Jesus. We do that through our praise and through our prayers to lift high the name of Jesus to the point that it transforms us. But then we are to encourage the timid, those who are struggling, who find themselves distracted. We want to then go to them, put our arms around them, and encourage them to walk with Jesus. And sometimes that encouragement will lead to exhorting the wayward, where they're pursuing other stuff, and and they're not listening to the godly counsel, that we have to lovingly admonish them back to the fold. What the church's job is to do is to equip the saints so that they can do so much of a better job at loving God and hallowing His name. And it means that we will evangelize the lost. All the while, brothers and sisters, remembering that Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. That then leads to, if the church is doing its job, we will impact this world globally. The gospel will go forth to the four corners of the world. And that God says that every, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, God will form for Himself a nation from all people, a people of God's own choosing. And he will do that. And he will show us that this isn't an American faith or a British faith or an African faith or an Asian faith. This is the faith of all people, of all times, in all lands. And one day we will see that when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now you say, what goes beyond globally? It's celestially. God's kingdom and his will will culminate where all things will come to an appropriate end. And the funny thing is, is that it won't come to an appropriate end. It will just be the beginning of eternity. You see, there will be a moment in time where God the Father will bring all things together, everything that has happened in human history, all of creation at that point, in one voice, both people and plants and animal will cry out to God and will celebrate the glory of God in one eternal crescendo of praise. And that will happen not for 10 minutes, not 20 minutes, for 100 million eons, and it will just be the beginning. God will be praised from this point on and forevermore. So then that begs the question as I close. Is this the God you believe in? This God who has a plan? This God who will bring all things together? This God who is holy and righteous, this God who is such a good and loving Father, is that what you believe when you get on your knees and you go to your secret place and you cry out to God? Is that whom we have in mind or do we have some celestial Santa Claus who knows when we're naughty and nice and who who gives out nice little things that in a couple days we see are no good anymore? You see, we serve a God who loves us, a God who desires a relationship with us, but a God who demands that we confess our self-righteousness and our pride as idolatry. And we take upon ourselves 
this prayer. This prayer reminds us who we are praying to and why we are praying to him and to what means and ends we are praying this prayer knowing that God's kingdom has come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let this prayer burn in our hearts. Let it burn in our lives so that by believing it and trusting it, we may see that it is true and altogether profitable for us to pray in such a way. Let's go to prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that we've been taught what it means to pray this morning by being reminded of who we are praying to. Lord, remove the small and puny picture of our minds of who you are. And let us see you as high and lifted up. Let us see you in the vision that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. The angels are flying about, just singing at the top of their voices, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Lord, allow that glory to fill us this morning. In the quietness of this time, Lord, in this place, let us commit our lives to You, the God of the universe, the God who is greater than everything, the God who one day will bring every planet and every galaxy and every solar system and universe Every molecule, every proton and neutron under his feet to make it a footstool for his son Jesus. This God whom we serve is a God who loves us and a God who desires a relationship with us. Lord, let that be a motivation to pray like we've never prayed before. You've invited us in the greatest adventure known to man, a relationship and communication with the God of the universe. Lord, let us not for a moment longer turn away from it in, dis in distraction. Lord, if that means we turn off the TV, our social media, if it means that we have to get away from, from people even as your son did, Lord, teach us to pray and teach us that our prayer life should be something that happens all the time. Lord, teach us what it means to pray without ceasing. And Lord, as we turn to you in prayer, we know that you are one who hears prayers and answers prayers. And so, Lord, we look forward and we praise you in anticipation of what you will do through the prayers of your righteous people. So, Lord, as we leave this place, as we go into a land of unrighteousness, in a land that prays only to themselves, Lord, I pray that we will lift high the name of Jesus, not only in what we believe, but in what we declare, in what we demonstrate from others, that they will see us as a praying people, Lord, even if they never see us on our knees, that they would know we are one who communes with the Almighty. And Lord, as a result of that, that we might be a changed people. Change us by your Holy Spirit. Empower us so that we may know how to pray, even at times when our words fail us. So, Lord, take us from this place and give us a great day with you, a day to commune with you and your people, a day to learn more about you, a day that 
as we close it out later tonight, we'll be able to look back and say, your name has been praised through all I've said and done. That's our desire, but Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to help us. So empower your people to do so. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.